This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. The fallout from Gaza continues. A conversation about the role and place of the ultra-Orthodox in Israel and a very marvellous winner of our Chutzpah Award. It's Unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Yannick Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Two Jews on the News from Kesha Podcast. Look, I know we have a lot to talk about, Jonathan. I mean, the flag march and the Israeli budget and combating anti-Semitism and so much has been going on in Israel and the Jewish world. But can we please do something that we have not done ever? Talk about seals. Is that okay? Seals. (laughs) Seals. I mean, we have talked about ferrets. Very first episode, I would go back to that. It was a very interesting conversation. This when I introduced you to the reverse ferret. But okay, go on, seals. Unforgettable. So, seals. That is what I want to talk about right now. I know it's bizarre. But this week, uh, Israelis that are divided on every subject known to man, including what is the best you know, ice cream flavor, when everyone knows it's chocolate chocolate chip. But anyway, we're divided on everything. But Israelis could unite this way uh, this week around Yulia. Yulia is a uh, an endangered monk seal that unexpectedly was found sunbathing on the shores in Jaffa. Uh, we don't really see seals here, to be honest. And she's part of this uh, endangered species. There's about 350 mature monk seals uh, in the world, even less around the Mediterranean. So she suddenly appeared to the delight of onlookers in the Tel Aviv area and beyond. She's uh, in the process of I know more about seals this week than I ever did, but she's in the process of shedding her coat. And on that, during that, she rests on the shore, but she has been here for longer than they usually stay and stick around. She sort of goes in the water and comes back. And it's been about a week since last Friday, even a little bit more. And Israelis are all enthralled by this, uh, by this seal. You see, I, this tells me that, you know, those raw search tests, which you look at the ink blots <laughs> and work out what your personality type is. Because I saw the video of Yulia the seal and immediately thought, she must be in distress. She's beached. She's away from the, her natural habitat. She needs to be reunited with the rest of her colony, school, family, whatever the right word for monk seals is. And immediately I had memories of the whale that got lost and found its way into the Thames, River Thames in London, and spawned a children's story and many other things. The whole country was watching, hoping they can get their way back to water. So that is my worry. But instead, you're saying sunbathing, and she's spending more time than she would normally, as if she really likes <laughs> okay. it. You, she's you, like an Ola Hadasha in your book. She's a she's arrived in Israel and thinks this is great. So yours is the positive take, and mine is the gloom laid. <laughs> as so often take. is the case, uh, we should so. say that uh, Israel's uh, National Nature and Park Authority sort of fence off the section so that people wouldn't bother her too much. And and it does seem there was some sort of concern: is she feeling ill? Is something happened to her? They are watching her quite closely and we're, we're taking good care of her don't worry about it i'm just saying uh you seem concerned that israelis don't know how to take care of seals i don't know why you would well as you said that. that you don't get many of them around <laughs> where you are but no i'm sure yulia once she starts applying for the correct paperwork and gets herself into the uh, administrative <laughs> system and finds a way to an absorption center i'm sure she'll settle in just I have fine to t- first of all tell you that she was also spotted in the past in lebanon and turkey but somehow she finds she just looks pretty comfortable here. The funny thing is there was, there was a Twitter live streaming of her and the WhatsApp group, the internal WhatsApp group on Channel 12 News reported this morning that she suddenly disappeared. We thought she was gone for good, but now she's back. So, you know, this is a developing story. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm here it, completely here for this story. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, I think your, your point about people sometimes do want something to all unite around. If Yulia has done that, she has already <laughs> done great service, uh, for the country. So good for Yulia. Um, I'm sure though, in your, from your anchors chair at Channel 12, you've not only been doing live seal, seal updates, reporting. <laughs> <laughs> marine, marine biology updates. I'm sure you've been doing other things. 
So what's um, I, I said at the top there, the fallout from Gaza as if we're in the aftermath. Is that how it seems? Yeah, I mean, let's talk about things that are less in consensus uh, for sure. Operation Shield and our arrow uh, officially ending Saturday uh, night, ceasefire taking hold between Israel and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. A few days after Israelis were reminded that the chronic uh, problems of Gaza aren't going anywhere. We realized that the chronic problems of this government are not going anywhere because this week the story that dominated the news was, and we will talk about this a little bit more with our interviewee uh, further down in our program, but the story that dominated is the budget discussions, the allocation of billions of shekels of coalition funds to the ultra-Orthodox communities and the religious Zionists. Yeshivas will get extra funding, 3.7 billion shekels, extra and extra two billion shekels, almost, to ultra-Orthodox schools and to teachers who do not teach the core curriculum. In the past couple of hours here, we're talking on Thursday noon, sees the Haredim very upset at Netanyahu asking for yet another extra 600 million uh, that they say they deserve. We should just for a moment try and see this from their perspective, in the sense that they have walked with Netanyahu through the political desert, through five election cycles, through a year and a half in opposition, never, ever breaking ranks. And now they want the payback. They want the political achievements that they have been waiting for. Remember, they also agreed to shelf the request for a law that exempts ultra-Orthodox from military service, at least for a couple of months. They agreed to or let's say hypothetically agreed to, shelving their uh, support for the judicial overhaul if Netanyahu wants to postpone it, but still they want the funding. That is what is important to them, and they don't seem to mind. I'm talking about the political leaders. They don't seem to mind that there is huge pushback and huge criticism uh, against this uh, in the general public. And as you say, we get into all of this with our guests later on, but it, you know, it's, a, it's a, one of those perennial questions for Israel, how long it can keep going, shelling out huge amounts of money to this one particular sector, even as you mentioned, when they are not learning the core curriculum that the rest of the country learns, which means they're not really fully equipped to take part in the workforce. This is an ongoing thing, which as an issue only gets larger because the population gets larger. The, mm -hmm. you know, the one fact, and as I say, we'll get into this, but the birth rate is so high of the ultra-Orthodox community, much higher than anybody else, you know, quite routine to have seven, eight, nine children, and therefore massive expansion and the bills to fund that body of people when many, many do not work, are going to get larger and larger. But yeah, it, inevitable, it had to happen, it was going to be payback. Yeah. And it, by the way, not only getting uh, larger and larger, the, the main concern is nothing in these funds is sustaining growth, is dealing with growth, is dealing with in infrastructure or with education that can lead to uh, these parts of the society being integrated into the workforce. So that is a problem for Israeli society in 10 and 20 and 30 years. Another thing we should say about the budget discussion, surprise, surprise, when you let an unruly politician in your coalition, he will still be unruly. So we should uh, again say that uh, Itamar Bengvir, the Minister of National Security, who seems to make this a bit of his hobby to boycott uh, votes in the Knesset, this time it's because he thinks he didn't receive enough allocated funds like the ultra-Orthodox did. So uh, yesterday he uh, decided not to vote with the coalition, leading to the coalition to lose twice in uh, votes. This is him trying to, you know, his assert himself. I don't know where this is heading, but it, in the meantime, we have to say both sides have no interest in uh, going to elections, but this isn't a good sign that five months into uh, the Netanyahu government, these are the skirmishes that we see. Absolutely. And it goes to a point that I think we've made before about this man in particular, Itamar Ben-Gvir, which is he is an opposition politician. He's oppositional. Mm -hmm. His favorite position is standing against those in authority. And it's, there's always going to be a kind of bizarre topsy turviness about a guy like that being in the government. And therefore he's going to have to, you know, to, in order to remain who he is, he's going to constantly have to pull stunts like this of not voting for the budget of his own government. And in fact, you know, I think we're going to get on to talk about flag day, you know, and mm -hmm. that kind of, big demonstration of, again, groups that used to be on the fringes, and guess who's there among them, you know. So it's mm -hmm. this odd thing where you've taken people who were previously throwing rocks from the outside are now inside the greenhouse, you know, and that makes yep. a big difference. 
Yeah. Well, let's go on to talk about it. Let's move on to talk about the flag march then that is happening today. We should say that we're recording this a little bit before uh, this happens, but it's a, it's an annual march. We should say that, you know, this never succeeded in becoming an all-Israeli consensus event. Uh, rather, the opposite. It is the event of the religious Zionists walking from West Jerusalem to East Jerusalem through the Holy City. There always are, we should say, incidents of violence, of racism against the uh, Arab uh, citizens of uh, Jerusalem. The organizers of this march always say there are tens of thousands of people and you always focus on the violence. But yes, this is what we focus on, what everyone around the world is focusing on. Again, we don't know how this will play out today because we're recording before. But as you said, the groups that used to be on the fringes and people who were considered the provocators are now in top positions in the government. And Itamar Bankville will be marching in this march. So it will be very interesting to see how this uh, plays out. Yeah, I mean, it won't surprise long-time listeners or you, need to know that I absolutely cannot stand this thing, this Flag Day event. Uh, for, two, for two or three bits of my sort of life experience make me really loathe it. I mean, one bit is that, you know, a long time ago now, but I covered, I've talked about this before, the peace process in Northern Ireland. And one of the really difficult things there were these parades, these traditional parades through neighborhoods where um, particularly Protestant groups would march through historically Catholic neighborhoods. And it was really provocative and it was always trouble. And people who were not themselves marching would just put their head in their hands and say, you know, we've just got things to calm down. People are just getting along. And now we've got this to deal with. And you feel like after a matter of days after what was going on in Gaza, where people just need some, you know, calm and stability, then instead this kind of in-your-face demonstration, absolutely provoking a community that, you know, in Jerusalem, uh, Palestinians in Jerusalem are in any way a beleaguered position, and then they have to have people marching through their streets and their neighborhood waving flags and provoking, and in previous years, chanting death to the Arabs and so on. So I hate that about it. I also just can't stand this may mean puts me in a smaller minority, perhaps the fetish fetishization of the flag like that. My sort of uh, guiding star on this quoted him a million times before Amos Oz, who talked about the trappings of nationhood that Jews, you know, relieved to have a home and a state, of course, but reveling in the sort of trappings of nationhood was something which was associated with people who made life Pretty difficult for Jews in the past, those, that kind of overt, aggressive nationalism. So but there's the fact that, that the flag has seems this year to be reclaimed by the other side because it's become such a symbol of the protests against the judicial overhaul. Doesn't that kind of change your view at all? Or Very good point. I think it really does. And, uh, you know, I was at the demonstrations and saw the flag last month, saw the flag being reclaimed in that way, and that was very affecting. I think it's this be it's being used as I said, it went to be waved in people's face as a, uh, a as an aggressive act, I think, when you're going through neighborhoods where that isn't the flag that people in those neighborhoods identify with, to wave it in their face like that seems to me a provocative act. So yes, you're right. That's That's a good nuance on it. It's not the flag itself. It's how you, if you're brandishing it as a kind of weapon, I think that's the sort of recoil i feel so yeah and just the the kind of cast of characters who are involved in this thing they're people who i think just bring trouble and heartache uh, and distress wherever they go and uh, we've seen that in previous years and as you and i speak as we record i'm sort of checking for you know the latest updates hoping that it doesn't yet again kick off and lead to violence and trouble and disturbance and you know unhappiness because that's been the track record so I'm just trying to follow because maybe this was an understatement. You don't like the flag march. It's a British understatement, just in case someone missed it. Um, to me, it's always interesting because as I told you, it's such a, it's become such a pun intended flagship event of the religious Zionism movement and, and no one else in Israel, really, that it's always interesting to me just to watch the fact that there are two marches, one for men and one for women. This is how religious it has become. You never hear anything about the Women's March, right? I mean, that they're just walking around with, you know, dancing and celebrating Jerusalem Day with the flag march. You don't hear that part. You're only going to hear about uh, scenes of, of violence in the, you know, uh, that's understandable, of course, as a news 
person, I understand that, but I'm just, I'm interested in that as well. But that's a good point because maybe that would be a way forward. They have a women's march every year and leave it to them. Well, there is one. I'm just saying no one focuses only on that. it. Because, I'm saying let's yeah, have it that to only okay, that. That's a good idea. And I let's bet you there'll be that. less trouble, you know. <laughs> that's always true, by the way. <laughs> Meanwhile, over in Washington, Jews arguing with Jews uh, in a different context, which is over anti-Semitism and how best to define it. And uh, I mean, that in a way, it is like the setup for a sort of you know, joke about the Talmudical nature of Jewish disputation. But it's serious. Uh, Deborah Lipstadt, former guest on Unholy, Ambassador Deborah Lipstadt, as she uh, is now, the, the State Department's top envoy to combat global anti-Semitism, is coming... Episode 76. Uh, uh, I'm sorry to uh, epi- Thank you. you. Uh, she very was on good. episode 76. She is set to unveil what will be America's first ever national plan to counter anti-Semitism. It's going to be unveiled by the White House with the full clout and status of that. And in advance, what's interesting is Ambassador Lipstadt, he clearly knows that there could be some, you know, argument around this. And she said, she brought in some reporters this week to say, look, there will be things people will quibble with, which is a fantastic bit of Jewish understatement there, because we know what we're like. Uh, but she says, look, people need to focus on the big picture. And the reason that the, the argument, it comes down to this issue of definition, where, you know, the bigger Jewish organizations have been whole, hoping the administration will work off what's known as the IRA definition, IRA standing for International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, uh, which actually the State Department uh, has in the United States has used for a long time. And it's been adopted all around the place, plenty of countries in Europe, governments, academic institutions, all kinds of people have adopted it. But others, groups more associated with the left, have said there are problems with the IRA definition because it is too broad and encompasses what might be legitimate criticism of Israel, that phrase, legitimate criticism. Defenders of IRA say, no, there's no problem. You can knock yourself out criticizing Israel as much as you like. The definition only excludes criticism of Israel, which spills over into anti-Jewish expression. It's further complicated because there's an actual definition. And then there are these illustrative examples that go with it. And it's in some of those examples that people feel it goes too far to shutting down uh, discussion of Israel, this notion of branding a Jewish state a racist endeavor. Uh, And I've even had arguments myself about, does that mean you're attacking the actual Jewish state or the idea of a Jewish state? I told you, it gets Talmudic, but it's very charged and political. It was one of the big issues in this country when Jeremy Corbyn uh, was leader of the Labour Party because he didn't want the IRA definition adopted because he worried it would prevent people saying that Israel was a racist endeavor. And he thought there were people on the left of the party who might want to say that. It became this huge battle. It was on the national news, you know, rather than just being an internal Jewish argument. So Deborah Lipstadt has sailed right into that with this new plan of hers that's coming. Uh, And I wonder what she'll do, whether she'll just simply adopt IRA, uh, that definition, or will she come up with a new form of words, which in a way cuts the Gordian knot. You know, it avoids coming down on one side or the other and just says, this is how we define it. I wonder if she might do that. We don't know yet. The plan will come. But, you know, it just shows you that when you're in this territory, nothing is straightforward, even if you think we can all agree that anti-Semitism is a horrible thing. And we should be glad that the United States and the White House is trying to devise a plan to combat it. I think, and uh, correct me if I don't remember this right, but in our conversation with her on the podcast, it seemed like there was an echo, uh, obviously, of this discussion, right? When does anti-Semitism spill into anti-Zionism or, or vice versa? And she did seem to think like there were places where that those connect, right? That the, the reason for anti-Zionism is actually uh, anti-Semitism. I think Howard Jacobson, in our uh, episode of Conversation with him, also echoed a little bit of that. I agree that it's a lot is going to be in the wording. And if you're going to have this discussion within the Jewish community, you're going to have a lot of obviously a lot of different opinions. She herself comes from the sort of more of the left side of this uh, argument, doesn't she? she, I mean, more, but there are people Mm -hmm. further to the left. I mean, so there was this alternative (laughs) definition. Surprise, surprise. There's always space. There was a a definition, I think it was called the Jerusalem Declaration, Jerusalem Mm -hmm. Declaration on Anti-Semitism, 
which really wanted to leave plenty of scope for people to go after Israel. And there definitely have been reports that people have said that, you know, Palestinians who they've worked with for years, who they know are not anti-Semitic in any way, have, have, have had their sort of uh, collar felt, as it were. They've had the authorities, let's say at a university, come to them and say, mm, hold on, we're not sure that this pro-Palestinian thing you're doing or anti-Israel thing you're doing is safe now or is allowed now under the IRA definition. As I say, people go back and forth on this because what people say is excluded is only that expression of anti-Zionism that becomes anti-Semitic. It's often mm. how you word things. But, you know, when people talk about, for example, demonizing Israel, oh, it's one thing to criticize Israel, but if you demonize it, cast it as a kind of devil, then that's across the line. Well, I get the point, but it's quite subjective. People are going to argue about what, what, when is criticism demonization or not. It's not like this is a matter of hard scientific distinction. These things are in some ways dependent on context. And again, I know that defenders of IRA will say, yeah, and actually the IRA definition says it depends on the context. So there's plenty of room, they say. But this argument does go back and forth. I think it's terribly, you know, in some ways debilitating because it's a distraction from the actual task at hand, which it's is to fight the, the anti-Semitism that we could all, let's say, agree on when everyone is in these rooms and thrashing out wording and definitions. It's it can feel as if it's taking away from the uh, from the main thing. So we mentioned this at the beginning of our show today, the conversation and the public debate over the allocation of uh, a lot of funding from the Israeli budget to the Haredi community, particularly to parts of it that don't teach the core curriculum and what the effects of this will be on uh, Israeli uh, society. And we want to talk to someone who is uh, in a very interesting position to discuss uh, this. Michael Eisenberg is an American and Israeli businessman. He's a venture capitalist and an author. He's also the co-founder of uh, Aleph, that's a venture capital that funds, that invested in over 25 Israeli uh, high-tech companies. But he's also the board member at Yeshivat uh, Haaretziana, Yeshiva that combines Torah studies with military service. He's also someone who's been involved for years in integrating ultra-Orthodox into the Israeli uh, society. And this week, he uh, wrote an open letter to the Haredim, to the ultra-Orthodox, my brothers, he called them, saying that this allocation of extra funds to uh, the Yeshivot and to uh, the places who don't teach core curriculum is detrimental not only to the Israeli society as a whole, but specifically to the uh, ultra-Orthodox themselves. And we want to talk to him about that. Michael, hello. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you for having me. Um, so I want to talk, I want to focus our conversation on your, the, what you wrote this week. You tweeted it, then it became an article. You know, you've been involved in years trying to integrate the ultra-Orthodox into the Israeli workforce, and you say that this current allocation of funds to them in the current budget is detrimental to them. It's detrimental to the Israeli society. That Nothing about this plan is going to create growth. So I want to understand more about that. Well, what I wrote this week was a letter to the ultra-Orthodox, to the Haredim. I think it's very important in the heat of this moment that we've been in for the last four or five months in Israel to talk to people about their own self-interest. There's way too much, in my opinion, of people walking around, as we say in Hebrew, nu, 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 and uh, moralizing to other people. But I think if we, if we take the time and explain to other people what the potential dangers are to them of the current path of these allocations and the government in this moment of time, which by the way is post COVID, after a huge amount of money was printed and sprinkled on the population during COVID. We're in a big period of inflation right now. We're in a time of slowing economic growth across the world for a variety of reasons we can get into. So the allocation today, both in the quantum of it and the lack of public support for it and in the inflationary environment, in my opinion, will do not good things for the ultra-Orthodox population. They, by the way, which is what I pointed out in the piece, live off of more government handouts than the average Israeli family. They have less elastic income. And so therefore, inflation, which is caused by this, plus the lack of economic growth, which is a derivative effect of the handouts, will come back to bite them more than anybody else. Um, but I think nobody has really communicated that in a kind of 
level set way to people and a kind tone. We've, we've been overtaken, unfortunately, by a lot of, uh, how should we say, heated debate and even going down and, and, and threatening people. And it's, it's not appropriate. I get the economist argument you make in the piece in which you explain that to sprinkle money, as you as you put it, on a community that will just be used for consumption and that doesn't lead to growth automatically leads to inflation and that will shrink the value of the money that the ultra-Orthodox of all people will receive. So I get that as an economic argument, but I felt as if under it was you know, moral in a way, which I felt was in, you know, in the country you used to live in America, we would have talked about dependency culture. I thought you were sort of saying between the lines, tell me if I'm wrong, that it's also not good for the ultra-Orthodox, for the Haredi Israelis to just be in this mode of handouts and dependency. And yes, you were saying, look, this is bad for you because the, the shekel in your pocket is going to shrink. But I thought you were also saying, look, guys, you need to not always be dependent on the, the money from the handed out by the state. Well, that's correct. I think there's multiple levels to that. And I was responding to Yonit's question about the economic argument. But, and I want to say this very, very clearly, Israeli politicians, right, left, center, up and down, by the way, for the last 40 years or so, maybe this is beginning to say, but certainly, in my opinion, since the early 90s, have made a deal with the ultra-Orthodox politicians, and in some cases with the rabbis, we'll give you money, let us do what we want. And that, by the way, is on the Israeli politicians, all of them, secular, religious, right, left. They have, out of self-interest and a desire for quiet, have bought parliamentary votes in this manner. That's one side of it. And they are at fault. And we need to say that. And at the same time, the ultra-Orthodox Haredi system has set up that the political patrons or fathers, the parties and the party heads, who, by the way, have been in government for decades, Gaffney and Derry and whoever the representative of the Grand Rabbi of Gore is. Uh, Goldknopf. Well, it's now Goldknopf, but it doesn't matter. They're just yeah, a representative right. of the Grand Rabbi of Gore, or Eichler, who was the representative of Bells, mm -hmm. have been there for decades. Mm -hmm. This is not healthy. And it's not healthy for a variety of reasons. The ultra-Orthodox population becomes dependent on that. And that's not healthy for the ultra-Orthodox populations themselves. They wait, so to speak, for the handouts or the political arm wrestle that generates budgets for them, for their institutions, and for many other things that we don't see because so much money flies around in this budget, particularly in the finance committee, it's hard to keep track of it all. And that dependency uh, has a couple of problems. Uh, one I would say is religious. It's really a religious problem. If you are a religious person, you are supposed to be beholden to God, not to politicians and not into rabbis. And then the second part of it is dependency does not create autonomy or free choice or free will, which is, I think, a critical part of any religious belief system, and certainly the Jewish religious belief system. And the last thing is, unfortunately, dependency, you know, and, and the Mishnah says this, that batala, which means idleness, leads to boredom, and boredom leads to sin. And so religiously, morally, as you would call it, that's not okay. And add to that the societal issues, which is we can't have no Jewish society. And the, the Torah, the Bible, never envisioned this, ever imagined that some class of people uh, would be supported. Even the Levim, the Levites, who is oft quoted by the ultra-Orthodox, worked for a living, by the way. They had fields outside mm -hmm. of their areas where they lived in. Mm -hmm. I think the ultra-Orthodox, who I spent a lot of time, and I even teach Torah in their institutions, we need to talk to them. And it needs to be explained. You cannot imagine, by the way, since I wrote this piece, what's happened, so many ultra-Orthodox young people have reached out to me saying, please come by and talk to us. Two very, very, very well-known rabbis in the ultra-Orthodox community invited me to their home on Friday. I'm going. Uh, on Friday to talk about this. is also this. published, we should say, on Kikar Shabbat, right? On the yeah, Friday it published in Kikar Shabbat, that, which, is yeah. the, which is the ultra-Orthodox website. There is, there is a desire, a hunger to integrate on some level, something on their own terms, but, all, but also not. And these trends are underway, but at the political level, we keep stunting them.
me to stop. Yeah. Forgive me for labeling. I mean, obviously you're not your bio and, and, and what you say in many cases, you're not the classic liberal-leaning, high-tech entrepreneur from Tel Aviv, right? You complimented Netanyahu many times, and including in his uh, financial plan presented before the election. Does he not understand this? Does he not see the Titanic about to hit the iceberg? I mean, you're correct about the fact that I have a nonpartisan view in Israel of what is right and wrong, and I try not to speak from what they call here a position of which side of the aisle you're on. I think Netanyahu has done wonderful things for the economy over time. Uh, I'm on the record, so you can go find it in Makori Shona as of six yeah. years ago, that I think, you know, we need term limits, and he's passed his date. And I think different sides of different parties and different aisles can be right and wrong, you know, equally. It's not, so you know, do, do I think he, he doesn't know this? As a sharp economic mind, does he not see the I think he has a very sharp economic this? mind. I think he understands this, but I think the political setup that we're in right now in Israel, where... What we to say is, I think, puts him in a position that he can be squeezed uh, by a lot of mm-hmm. people. And I think, again, the ultra-Orthodox politicians have an interest in keeping their community at bay. And I think their community is waking up. And I think what's lost on, you know, some of the other population here is just how powerful that kind of forces under the surface. And when you treat people with respect, which mm-hmm. unfortunately I think has not been the case, they respond in kind. And there's unbelievable energies in the ultra-Orthodox community. And we need to unleash them. And we need to welcome them. And we need to engage with them. They're not going away. Just, just um, uh, I'm, I'm struck by you mentioning the possibility you might go and, and you, on some days you do go and teach Torah in those communities. This point you made before, which is there's nowhere in the sources or in the tradition that there is this sort of idle tribe, this group of people who are allowed to just be studying permanently and not being supported. Jews have always worked for a living. I get that. You get that. I, I, I'm struggling to know how the people in those yeshivot, in those religious academies, in Bnei Brak, in Meir Sharim, who read these texts as closely as you do, do not know this. In other words, there seems to be some kind of strange historical deviation that's happened in the last 50, 60, 80 years. I see it here in, in the ultra-Orthodox community in London, but you can see it in New York and elsewhere. It's not like they don't know the tradition and don't know the text. How come it's, it, you know, that you see it and they don't? Well, I, I think there's a, there's a couple of important points to make here. Number one, there has always been, since Talmudic times, two schools of thought on this. In fact, the Talmud brings the dispute between Rabbi Shimon, who may celebrate in Meron on Lagba Omer, at his graveside, who said, you should study Torah the whole time, and it'll work out in a kind of way. And Rabbi Yishmael, who says, no, 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 the Bible says, Vasafta de Ganecha, you will collect your fruits of your labor. That doesn't work out. And then a later sage, speaking about 200 years later, says, many tried the path of Rabbi Shimon, and it didn't work out. Those who did like Rabbi Yishmael, you know, and they worked, it did work out. And that's been the history of our people. There's always been a small camp that believes in study. But even in the Middle Ages, in the time of Rashi and the Tosafot, a yeshiva was 10 people, 20 people, 25 people. What's changed now is the scale of it. The scale has gotten massive. It's not that this didn't exist as a small group of elite scholars. And I think we need that, by the way, in a meaningful way. Um, but the scale has changed entirely. That's the first thing. The second thing is one needs to put themselves in the headspace of the ultra-Orthodox rabbis 75 years ago after the Holocaust, where they looked around Europe in particular and said that the world of Torah has been wiped out and we need to rebuild it. And so they started. And then this thing starts, by the way, and at a certain scale, it's okay. But then we had an unholy alliance of the politicians of labor, Likud, Merit, you name it, all of them, with the ultra-Orthodox politicians who conspired together over 30 years of either incompetence, impotence, or worse, to create this thing that we're now having to deal with. And by the way, I think it's an incredible moment in the history of a country that we have the great fortune to be part of, which is we're finally going to have to confront the hard issues that sit at the basis of our society. We have never properly defined what is the Jewish role of the state. We've never properly defined what is the democratic exact form of government we want. It's been very fluid. And boy, how exciting is it that we have an opportunity to go figure that out right now? And we need to do it with empathy and not anger. 
Yeah, I mean, it's going to be difficult to do it when everyone seems to be at each other's throats. But um, That's your job, Yonique. Concerned- Calm them down. <laughs> <laughs> really, I'm trying. Really, I'm trying. I'm wondering how concerned when you kind of zoom out and look at everything that's been going on in the past couple of months, the judicial overhaul and the protests and what seems to be like this really this turmoil and internal strife. How concerned are you when you look at the health of Israeli society and the health of Israeli economy uh, particularly? So first of all, I'm always concerned. I have been for years. Mm-hmm. When I came to Israel in 1993 and people were at each other's throats after Oslo, I was concerned. It was like, hey, I'm new off the boat here. What's going on here? Why is everybody so passionate? It turns out, by the way, that that we get into this spin-up a lot. Um, I'll remind you about the protests on Rothschild Boulevard. And here we are again. Uh, And, you know, 12 or 13 years later. So I'm always concerned. And at the same time, I'm always optimistic because I think we have a lot of resilience as a people. And I think we will get through this. I think the country, for what it's worth, has changed forever. And the thing that I believe deep down is most people are good and have good intentions and they get riled up for time. But if we sit them down, we'll get it going. Number two, and this is super important. And this is why I wrote the post. Our economy matters a ton. And I think the current moves on the economy in this particular post-COVID environment where we've printed a lot of money and inflation is running away and high tech is slowing down and real estate is slowing down is a potentially toxic cocktail that we need mm-hmm. to deal with right now. And so mm-hmm. right before I and, came and, on this, I made a call to someone in government and I said, because there's another demand today for another 600 million shekels. And I said, you need to put a stop to this. From the ultra-Orthodox. Yeah, we, we put a stop to it. An extra demand. Mm-hmm. The fact you're on the phone to people like that, it prompts a question in my mind. When I saw a couple of pieces you've written recently. One was addressing the ultra-Orthodox saying, look, don't take this money, don't demand it, it's bad for you. And then also, in a way, I thought you were turning to non-Orthodox Israel and saying, you know, don't give these guys a hard time. Actually, they save the the coffers of the state of some money because they look after their own and they do have in effect their own welfare, etc. I thought, okay, this is somebody who's quite a, you know, small P politician here who's keeping, you know, who's doing a, doing a move which keeps both constituencies no, I'm not you know, running in for the office. tent. Hold on. So therefore, you, you're making that phone call. It interests me whether, you know, at some point you think you should be the one receiving the phone call rather than making them. In other words, you can throw this at me too. I'm somebody who sits on the sidelines writing commentary. Is there not a point at which if you've got the ideas and you've got the strong conviction, which you very clearly have, you've got to get your hands dirty and get into the game? Look, I don't want to talk about myself too much, but I, I get my hands plenty dirty. I just don't run for office because uh, I'm not certain I would survive it or be productive. I get and, it. I, I, I do want to add to what Jonathan is asking, though, because I know you're running out of time, but I'm interested in, in the fact that you have you been seeing, you know, investors growing cold or anything in your sort of part of this story in, in the past couple of months? So I just want to address Jonathan's question first. The, the yeah. second piece that I wrote, which is, addressed to my liberal brothers, is an attempt to cause people, like I did with the ultra-Orthodox, to think about their own self-interest and to think about the interest of our society and our economy and to have a view of people that is not unidimensional. These topics are complex. Life is complex. People are complex. And we have unidimensionalized. And by the way, there's a lot of terrible hatred coming out of some of the fringes of the protest movement right now towards ultra-Orthodox. What happened in B'nai B'rach yesterday, in my view, is absolutely despicable. Okay, so I'm going to take a flag, an Israeli flag out, and help hit an ultra-Orthodox citizen in the country. And where are we living? It's despicable. Mm-hmm. We'd say. And I turned to the liberal part, and I said, you need to understand this is a more complex society than you give it credit for. It's not all about the politicians who, you know, who are taking uh, large parts of the budget, investing in non-productive areas. There's real people here, and there are other dynamics and economic dynamics at work. And it's important to recognize that. It's important to engage with it, because otherwise we don't solve problems. We're never going to solve problems with headlines and 30-second videos. Don't work. We need to engage and change the narrative and change where we're going. And to answer Yonit's question, it's really hard to differentiate right now in the overall global high-tech slowdown. What's global? what's local. Everyone Mm -hmm. in politics and in the protest movement is using all the data for their own good, speaking from their own position and their own partisan interests. 
And I just say, I don't know. Okay. I can tell you that we've continued to invest. I made another investment last week as a firm. We're making investments. Our investors are super excited about Israel. Just yesterday, I released a podcast with our largest limited partner, the largest investor in our firm, who's super bullish on Israel. I remain super bullish on Israel. I think we're going to come out of this stronger, not weaker, but it's going to be rough until mm -hmm. we get there. It's going to be rough. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. just on that, because the, the the lack of bullishness recently has been over specifically judicial reform, and you've seen the Moody's credit agency, etc., downgrading or warning of a downgrading. Most people think the current turmoil over the judicial reform and the judicial changes themselves are bad for the Israeli economy and for its outlook, and yet you're super bullish. So how come? Well, first of all, I haven't seen the judicial reform pass yet. That's the first thing. So we should just note that. And if you read the Moody's reports, they say, if this and this happens, then we will become concerned. We need to wait and see whether this and this actually happens. And I think you'd rather it doesn't happen. I think there is very large consensus in this country that we need some form of judicial reform. There is equally large consensus in this country that the judicial reform proposed by this government is bad. I'm part of that very large consensus. And by the way, I'll say more than that. The management of all of these processes, look, I come from high tech. Management matters. Like, what do I invest in? I invest in great entrepreneurs who know how to manage. Mm -hmm. And I think the management of many of these processes going on has been poor. But, you know, what are we interested in as citizens? We want mm -hmm. outcomes and outputs for years. And I've said this at, at the IDI, the Israel Democracy Institute, but all we talk about in all these conversations are the inputs. How much money are they getting? How much money is... Who's measuring the outcomes, for God's sakes? Why are we not measuring the outcomes? And the answer is because it's easy and you don't got to dig in to ask what are the inputs. Mm -hmm. But it's harder to demand outcomes and hold people accountable. We don't hold people accountable, and we need to. Mm -hmm. Sorry to be so passionate mm -hmm. about it. No, it's okay. But what you're saying. And part of the outcomes we need to hold people accountable for is how they manage processes. Do they get to the end? Do all the laws that they pass through get implemented or not implemented? Should they be implemented? What's the economic impact of them? You see, I haven't seen any discussion about it, by the way. You know, you want to make the case that judicial reform is good for the economy? Make the case on the outcome. You want to make the case that it's not good? Make the case on the outcome. Mm -hmm. I want to close out just with a question about your dialogue with the ultra-Orthodox and your message to them that, in a way, they mustn't be slaves to politicians who have been there for a very long time and so on. There is some movement in the ultra-Orthodox world. The younger generation are moving away, in some ways, from the older parties but they're not moving in the direction that you have sketched out. Instead, a lot of them have you know, voted for Itamar Ben-Gvir at the last election. They're moving into a direction of quite militant, aggressive, I would say chauvinist nationalism. I don't hear many of them talking the way you talked in that post of mutual respect and affection for one's what you call liberal brothers and so on. So how confident are you that if there is a breakage, you know, that there is a movement rather, of the next generation away from the sclerotic, stuck leadership of the last decades, they don't just go in the direction of Ben Gvir rather than in the direction uh, of Michael Eisenberg. I, first of all, no one has to go in the direction of Michael Eisenberg. That's that's not useful to anybody. But the, <laughs> did you ask yourself why did they vote for Ben Gvir? By the way, interesting to point out. By the way, the ultra orthodox parties, particularly the Ashkenazim, have not grown much uh, over time. The Shas mm -hmm. voters are different, but the population has grown a lot. Why they vote for Ben Gvir? I'll tell you why. Because he turned up. And nobody else has turned up. He was there. He showed up. You know, Rosabeth Cantor, the famous Harvard professor on leadership, says that the number one criteria for leadership is turning up. Mm -hmm. The only people who have turned up in B'nai B'rak are people angry and people who cause you to recoil. You want to talk to people. You want to influence the younger generation. You need to welcome them in the tent. You need to respect them. They are our brothers like everybody else. And by the way, the same thing is true if we're talking about, about the Arab sector too. And that's if you want to recruit the younger generation, if you want to change the narrative of this country, you got to turn up. Mm -hmm. Omer Barlev turned up to protest outside a rabbi's house. He didn't turn up before the election to ask them what they need, what help they need. Mm -hmm. It's a giant difference. I think this was a great conversation, Michael. Thank you so much. Um, we could go on and on. You have, you're a busy man. You, yeah. have things, you have other engagements. I'll turn up for live um, on you in television in Hebrew. <laughs> Deal. Um, it was great that, talking that to you. That would be fun. It would. <laughs> Thank you very much, Michael. That was Thanks a for very, very, very us, illuminating Thanks conversation. Thank you for that. Take care. 
very important stuff he is raising, and it's uh, all credit to him for actually taking this conversation to the ultra-Orthodox community themselves. Plenty of people talk about them. He's talking with them and to them. It's very interesting to me whether or not he's getting traction. The only question is, do the ultra-Orthodox and does the society as a whole wake up before Israel hits the iceberg? And again, I think it's really interesting to hear from someone who's not a Haredi himself, but has a lot of, a very close connection to that community, is religious, does know how to talk with a lot of respect, by the way, to this community and try and explain to them why it's a bad idea. I don't know if there's anyone listening. I assume there are a lot of people listening, but I don't know if the politicians are listening, the ultra-Orthodox politicians. That is the key question. Again, the budget is going forward, right? You have to have a vote until May 29th or the Knesset uh, dissolves. So that is probably going to happen. And then what? Like what happens to to Israeli society after that? That's an open question. Shall we go on to our uh, awards this week? I think we should. Um, And I know it's a little bit of stereotyping that the Israeli in the conversation so often points out chutzpah. But I think when people hear this, they will realize you do have a particular bit of stand in this <laughs> subject, and certainly more than I do. Well, I think we can't not this week give it to Elon Musk, uh, who tweeted on Monday night against George Soros. Could it be because uh, Soros uh, decided to uh, dump a Tesla stock? That is the main sort of thinking on why he did this, but we want to focus on what he wrote. He wrote, Soros reminds me of Magneto. We should pause on this to those of us who are not uh, X-Men fan. I assume you're one of them, Jonathan. You assume correct, because as we have discovered before, (laughs) just like I don't do the whole fantasy genre, did not watch even 30 seconds of Game of Thrones. Similarly, the kind of Marvel universe, I'm guessing this is in that world, does has i has slightly passed me by i'll be honest so um i, I defer it's to amazing your expertise. that you knew that it was marvel and not dc comics like i'm still shocked by that That's i had amazing. to do some research to get that far <laughs> um but go on your t- you tell me so, who magneto is so magneto is let's say first of all he's an anti-hero he's a holocaust survivor so he is indeed evil but his evilness stems from even bigger evil. So, okay, the Nazis were more evil than he is. He thinks that humans are dangerous to mutants. He's a mutant. You know that part of the story, right? The X-Men mutants. Yeah, okay, we're not going to go into that. But so indeed he is evil, but he's a complicated evil character. He does have some compassion in him. Look, it, it does sound quite anti-Semitic to compare Soros to him. Obviously, Soros also a Holocaust survivor. By the way, a conversation started in Twitter because I think a journalist talked or sort of pushed back on Musk on this uh, area. And then he wrote back, he started to explain that Magneto also had thinks he has good intentions. And Musk wrote, writes back about Soros himself. You assume there are good intentions. They are not. He wants to erode the very fabric of civilization. Soros hates humanity. Look, I mean, I don't know how yeah. to go into this and what you say about a person you may disagree with politically. You think his philanthropy is not targeted in the right place. Why would you say that he hates humanity? I have a hard time uh, understanding this in depth. But the comparison, you know, I don't know what would bother people more, that the comparison seems anti-Semitic or that the comparison just is, is, you know, based on a lot of ignorance. But this is what he did. I think he deserves the award for this. No, he very much does. I think whenever you go anywhere near Soros, who's become, besides being an actual human being, a kind of totem to global Mm -hmm. anti-Semitism, he's become a code word, a dog whistle, if you go there and say this person who is, as I say, both an actual Jew, but also this sort of shorthand for Jews and say enemy of humanity, hates humanity, then you've crossed into that very, very dark terrain. So I would say a very, very deserving winner of a Chutzpah Award in the bleakest sense, actually. So that's uh, there. But I will now go to these movies. Is there one movie in it's particular Ian that McKellen. I should Ian McKellen is Magneto. Doesn't this um, convince you at all? It does. I like Ian Patrick McKellen. Stewart so is there one is film? The is, like, is there one film or lots of them? Tell me. There are lots of them. I'll point you to oh, one. He's in, okay, Don't so you'll send me a reading list. Um, but the idea of the Holocaust <laughs> survivor villain is itself interesting. Right. I mean, the, the Holocaust survivor mutants in general is an interesting Whole thing. I don't think you'll like it at all, but watch it anyway. Okay, we might talk about that later on. Um, But I think actually, you know, people can start getting out their dictionary definitions, IRA and other ones, and see uh, which one meets the definition. Uh, So uh, it falls to me uh, yet again, which is lucky for me, but not so nice for you to be the person 
handing out the Mensch Award, which I do with some I wish the listeners could see us because you have that nice halo. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I do. It's not really fair, is it? Um, So it gets to be me who hands out this award. It prompted plenty of Twitter witticisms about Moses handing the Bible to his people. And that is because the lawyer Alfred Moses, a former American ambassador to Romania, provided the funds to buy an 1,100-year-old Bible in Hebrew at auction at Sotheby's in New York this week. It thereby became the most expensive book ever sold. He bought it for $38.1 million, but this isn't just any Bible. It's 1,100 years old. It's known as the Codex Sassoon, and it's been bought for the Museum of the Jewish People in Tel Aviv, the museum known now as Anu, previously at the Museum of the Diaspora. It's an extraordinary item. It's the oldest nearly complete copy of the Bible, a thought to be written by hand, either in Syria or in Eretz Israel, literally 1,100 years ago. 792 pages of sheepskin. It's got all 24 books and is missing, they say, only about eight pages. And to look at it, it looks like a Sefer Torah, like a Torah scroll that you would find in synagogue. And the thing is, people have not been able to see it for decades because it's been in a private collection since 1989. And so there had been this worry that it would just remain that way. And instead, it's going to be at a pub, in a public institution and on display. So big victory for Anu, the Museum of the Jewish Diaspora. It's obviously going to be their pride and joy, their prized collection. Uh, but really, I think credit to Alfred Moses, who said, this is the most influential book in history. I rejoice in knowing it belongs now to the Jewish people. It was my mission to see that it resides in a place with global access to all people. So I think a mention award for buying it, not for himself, but for a museum. Lovely. It was a lovely museum even before now, as you say, this showcasing this will be wonderful. We are reaching the end of our program. We shall maybe tell our listeners that next program will be a very interesting thing. We're not going to say anything else. Just going to tease it a little bit. And um, we will say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, Omer Prima, Trom Atik, and Yair Vashan. And of course, if you have enjoyed this edition, you must um, spread the word to your friends, family, even enemies, you know, let them know. <laughs> Even people you don't like, tell them about Unholy. We want as many of you to be listening to this as you can. And as Yoni says, interesting program coming up uh, next week. We'll see you then. We'll see you. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.